It is God's word, and his people, when they hear it, said amen. So say amen. <laughs> amen. Amen. Imagine this. You heard this story, right? Imagine being there. Can you? So there you are in Asia Minor. You leave your home for this pilgrimage. Normal Pentecost, you expect. Get there. Do what the Jews have done before you. What you were training as a child, what you yourself now get to experience as an adult. And then all of a sudden, finding a new home in Christ's people. Being saved. Imagine being one of these people. Salvation and community now yours. You wanting nothing more in this moment than to continue there in where the Spirit is. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And you're there. Imagine providing for your household in those days. As you do not go back to Asia Minor. Instead, you look and you want to constantly attend to people to go with this new gathering, to hear this new and beautiful and yet strange and divine teaching about Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Imagine that you scrounge everything you can. You share maybe a hostile type environment, a little house where you, your family, maybe four other guests that could fit in it in Jerusalem are all there. There's nothing now like physically, compared to what you had maybe in Asia Minor, where you lived and grew up, where your house was and your own place. Maybe this is more of a ragtag place in the city, but it's in Jerusalem and it's in within proximity of you being able to go and to hear the teaching of Jesus' apostles. Maybe you've actually started to look for some work helping a farmer outside of the city of Jerusalem to make some extra money in the distribution that is happening all the time. People are selling, richer people than you are selling their fields and they're giving them to these apostles and they're distributing it so that you and your family don't go poor and hungry. You want to chip in and maybe you've tried to secure some side work between being able to worship. Imagine you being struck between two desires. One is to stay and grow because for the first time in your life, repentance and atonement of sin makes sense. It makes sense. It's always made sense as you looked by faith maybe, but God has revealed it to you now. And you're his son. He sacrificed his one and only son for you so that you may have life. Imagine wanting to stay and wanting to grow in that, a huge desire you have, but also it's competing Though you've never experienced such grace, such power, you want to go home in some ways. You want to go back to Asia Minor. You want to think about your family and your friends and those Jewish compadres you know that that are there and they didn't come with you and you want to go to them, right? You want to hang out and you want to share with them what you've heard. So there's this tension bubbling inside of you. Imagine that. Imagine that you have maybe just a few weeks ago had Stephen. Not at one of the apostles, but one of the six men that were appointed to bring unity. Maybe he came to your house and that hostel that, that filled with people and they were in the streets as Stephen reasoned and did miracles and signs and wonders and, and you learned. And maybe now you're sitting there in that living room. It's not filled with them and it's not filled with Stephen. And as you sit there thinking about this tension you have to stay and go again and again to keep hearing the teaching... You run to the door. He's dead. Stephen's dead. He's dead. They stoned him. In a ray of anger, they dragged him out in the streets and they stoned him to death. He's dead and they're coming. They're coming. Get out of town. 
Saul and the other officers are coming. And they're coming house to house. And you may not be safe anymore. Now leave. You see, in this text, the levy of protection has been broken. Sovereignly broken by God to flood the church, this new beautiful church, to flood it with persecution and trial and destruction. And, and, and this now is the next wave of, of, of movement in the book of Acts. Verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution. You just heard it read. Against the church. They weren't just coming for Stephen. Now they're coming for everyone. They're coming for all who identify. Now we have to imagine this story. But people didn't have to imagine it. They lived it. One of them is Philip in our text. One of them was Stephen that did it first, a martyr. The context of this moment that you just heard read is that, as we just read, he gave the speech that we covered over Easter that he was dragged out into the streets and that he was stoned to death by those who are opposing the gospel. We have to imagine it. The people of God in Jerusalem did not. This was their immediate reality, just like the text says. Persecution like this did not stop them, though. It actually is going to be used by God in all of the excitement that it is and the difficulty that it is and the hardship that it is. It's going to be used by God. To do what? To equip them to face it, to grow the church you yourself may face it as well, brother, sister, church at RBC. If you are in Christ and trusting Him for salvation, the Scriptures promise that we need to be ready to preach through persecution. And that's what I want us to do today is talk about how can we preach through persecution. I think we need to see and believe three things from our text this morning if you're taking notes. First thing we're going to see is though it is challenging, persecution always has a purpose. Though it's challenging, persecution always has a purpose. Secondly, we're going to see, though it is painful, we must preach through sorrow and prison. So even though it's painful, we must preach through sorrow and even prison. And then thirdly, and in concluding, though it is hard work, we've got to preach to the streets and the people. Streets and people. Okay? Let's talk about the first point. Though it is challenging, persecution always has a purpose. Look at verse 1 again. Luke mentions Saul's approval of Stephen's execution here. He also, in verse 3 later, mentions that Saul is ravaging the church. He was awful. Uh, Saul, truly awful to these people. The Spirit deals uh, with him explicitly here in the text. Why? Well, the details are to show us the level of depravity that Saul, he, had arrived at in the midst of of calling himself righteous in God's sight. It's, it's Luke giving us a clear understanding of just how pointed this persecution is. Though challenging, persecution does have a purpose, but we first need to identify the challenging, the challenging part of it. The details are to show us that um, at this point, there's this one, Saul, this student of Gamaliel, we'll learn in Acts 22, a, a prominent, aspiring member of the religious party, the Pharisees, as indicated in chapter 7, he was a young man, which we heard last week. Maybe he was too young to do anything um, but approve of the execution. We don't know, but we know this. The text is clear. With all of the malice 
In his heart, he approves of the death of Stephen, and he is hungry for more. An insatiable desire has begun to be unleashed in him. Remember, though it is challenging, persecution always has a purpose. Before we get to the purpose, let's understand this some more. Okay? One commentator reminds us that the progression in Acts has been that, that these men were first warned in Acts 4.18, right? And, and then they were beaten in Acts 5, verse 40. Now one of them has been murdered and killed, Acts 7.60, and now widespread persecution is against them all. The situation has progressed to this intensity quickly. And the fact that it explicitly states in the verse there, on that day, it shows us that this murder of Stephen started on this day, and, and even maybe within the same day, there is great persecutions that break out. As I said in the intro, it's like the levy of God's grace uh, that could only be perceived you know, by what they had in their unity is now, like it seems like it's broken, and there's this new element of persecution what will happen? In our text, when it says church, you need to know this is the second and third uh, times in our passage that this word for church, the gathering, has been used in Acts. So literally, this is like, if you want a definition of the church and what it needs to do, here's the first instances where we're saying here is a group, an ecclesia, a gathering of people that are marked off by God for His purposes. Here's something they can experience. In other words, it's not just the leaders that are experiencing this. Hence my liberty I took in my introduction to gain your attention. There are real people facing a real challenge. A real challenge. However, we see in this verse the purpose of it, don't we? I mean, right here in verse 1, we see that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria. Now that right there should trigger your mind. It is important to ask why these region names sound so familiar to me and you. Here's why they do. It's because in Acts 1.8, the sovereign Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ, stood there, resurrected in his new and glorified body. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. We've seen that. But he also said, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The purpose of the challenge of persecution in this text are right there in Jesus' words. The fulfillment of Jesus' words a few chapters later, right here. Those were the words of Christ to the apostles and the disciples of Jesus. And with the presence of these scattered new believers there, the potential for fulfillment has now increased. God has sovereignly, through this work of persecution, gotten his Christian witness into Judea and to Samaria. Luke wants you to see that. Why? Because there's a purpose in suffering. God does not waste our struggles and sufferings, ever. We should believe his promises are true. And follow him, even if it is at a cost of our own lives. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's an account of a man named John Cutnor, and he was executed by the Roman Catholic Church. Fox reports it like this When John Cutnor came to the place of execution, a Jesuit said to him, Embrace the Roman Catholic faith, which alone can save and arm you against the terrors of death. To which he replied, your superstitions, your, excuse me, your superstitious faith, I abhor. It leads to perdition. 
And I wish for no other arms against the terrors of death than a good conscience. The Jesuit turned away, saying sarcastically, The Protestants are impenetrable rocks. To which Kutnar corrected him, You are mistaken. It is Christ that is the rock, and we are firmly fixed upon him. Why can you believe that God is not wasting your struggle or your suffering? How can you and I attain to the understanding that the purpose in persecution or the purpose in trial, the purpose in suffering, really is God working to change us? Well, it's because true faith fixes on the rock of Christ's promises. These men stand there and take what is persecution that does scatter them to Judea and to Samaria and it's in fulfillment of God's promise. You know they got there. You know this was a foundational teaching in the New Testament church. Just days ago, brothers, he said, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And whatever they knew about Jerusalem, now they're out onto the unknown as they flee. And persecution's purpose is to root them on the rock of God's promises. God knew they would be there and he knew how they would get there. And he got them there in this way. This should moister their confidence even as they face death. Realize in our lifetime or not, we face persecution with the hope of deliverance. In other words, if dead, we will rise. All of us, whether we're never, if we're never persecuted in the way that this, this, Roman, this Roman Catholic Jesuit you know, killed, and, killed and murdered and executed this Protestant brother in the faith of ours, John Kutnor, or whether we're ever to consider that we would suffer like Stephen or the men in Scripture here like Philip and those who are scattered. One, of a, one day all of us will face death, that, and that is a persecution, a trial that we all anticipate, right? Now, I think between death and between this example, there's a million ways that we could answer the question of you know, needing God's help in our persecution. But one thing is clear. God has a purpose in all of it. He has a purpose. And verse 1 shows us this. One other thing to note about the text explicitly. Notice it states that the apostles were not included in this group. You may ask yourselves, why? Why not? There's many views that commentators take on explaining why the apostles stay. They're helpful to understand the context. I encourage you to study them. But one clear reason, however, fits with this first point that God uses, you know, His purpose can be known in our, in our persecutions. It shows us the resolve of the disciples. <laughs> it shows that they're willing to stay and endure to shepherd the flock among them. Okay? To endure all hatred and malice for his namesake. That's why they stay. It may not be the only reason, but it is an, a reason. It was for the joy set before them, him that Christ endured the cross on their behalf. So with the joy that is set before him, they will endure the persecution for his namesake to be going where? to Jerusalem, where they feel called and responsible, to, Ju to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the text will go on to show that eventually they'll go different places. Peter ends up with Cornelius. But for now, this is God's plan. This is not to say it's wrong for those who leave to leave. So as we just concluded, it is actually the will of God to do so. I mean, the fulfillment of the Great Commission is for Christians to be wise enough to realize that if I stay in this house, I'm going to be killed like Stephen, so let me return back to Asia Minor. They implore the wisdom, wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove, right? There's no, they're not, it's not that they're scared running from persecution. They're wise enough to go there. And what happens when they go? The witness 
of Christ himself comes to Judea, comes to Samaria, comes to the ends of the earth. It's beautiful. So it's not to say they're wrong for leaving. It is to say they are no longer, um, these disciples are no longer the cowards. You know, nobody's cowardly in this church. They're not cowards that are scattering and abandoning Jesus in, in the name. They're not, they're not, they're not going to give in. Why? They believe God has a purpose. The, um, the purpose of persecution is used by God. It will change these apostles. It will change them. We will see some of them be changed. You keep reading. Like, what I mean is from one degree of glory to the next. Like they, they will be sanctified and because they stay in Jerusalem and we see all the, the apostolic power that they display it really begins to root itself only in the scriptures. I mean it was always in the scriptures but as we see like the, the, the progression with Paul is the signs will begin to fade and the, the New Testament church stands on the teachings. What happens? Like it's this beautiful like reality that God was maturing them the whole way too. We're all in this together. It really is true. So the persecution was purposeful, even though it was challenging. Second point. Though it is painful, we must preach through sorrow and prison. So though it is painful, we must preach through sorrow and prison. Look at verses 2 and 3. So our second point here actually follows the text, natural division. Um, We'll talk about sorrow, verse 2, and then we'll talk about imprisonment, verse 3. The text does that. So let's talk first about preaching through sorrow. So even though it's painful, we must preach through sorrow. Notice verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen, and they made great lamentation over him. Okay, it's indicated that this is a large group of men. That's what's envisioned here. A large group of men in Christ, something like a small group of strong men that are willing in the midst of persecution to do the right thing. They have to do it from a heart of sorrow, but they do it. In the law, those who died the executed death by stoning, they were allowed burial, but they were not allowed the lamentation that is in view here. Okay? The, 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 the leaders that have stoned Stephen would, would have allowed someone like him, a blasphemer, so they say, to be buried, but they would not allow them to be publicly exalted in lamentation. They wouldn't allow that. But these men... They show the rebellious spirit of the new believer. It's, it's, they're rebels with a cause for Christ. <laughs> okay, they're not seeking anarchy. But they are showing amidst the fiery trials that when the opportunity comes to either fear and fly, or flight, they're not going to leave. They're going to stand, and they're going to stand on the same principles. And for them, they see such a dogged commitment to Christ and His people. What they model for us is that that this man died and he was, he was not cursed of God, right? He died as one pointing to the one who was cursed. We should weep. We've lost something huge here. And so at the risk of their own lives, they tear their clothes in sackcloth and ashes and they cry out. And we don't know how long, but we know that this lament, this wailing, this mourning was an expression of grief at that time that sometimes could last 30 to 90 days, I mean, we have examples in the Old Testament when Moses or David dies that all of Israel goes and wails and laments and cries out before God of how sorrowful they are. These men do that for Stephen in honor of, of Christ, which he died exalting as a martyr, and they do it at great risk to their lives. So through sorrow, even though it was painful for them, they preached the gospel. This pain was real. Stephen was their friend. He was their brother in Christ. He was respected by all, known by many. Now he's gone, murdered. Now some of you know the loss that they feel. I mean, some of you have lost loved ones dear to you recently. I'm talking about you in the church today. 
Some of you years ago. Others more recently. And the truth is, some of us will know it sooner than we would like in the future. Losing a loved one. But God is a God who can transform grief and sorrow from today. And he can turn it into something beautiful for our future. And it's okay to sit in sorrow if we're willing to preach the truth. You know, people who are sorrowful and curse God and blame God and doubt God's goodness, this is, this is frowned upon. But people who press into real lament, that it's lamentable that I've lost someone I care about and I love him enough that hell or high water, my own death, I'm going to present the truth. I have one hope and he rose from the grave. And right now when I lay Stephen into this grave, it hurts. This is where they're at. And if you haven't considered this, do so now. You may be tempted to waste your grief. Sometimes we like to waste grief on rationale. We try to control it. Others try to waste grief through suppression. Others have outrageous emotional episodes. But I urge you, just like these men would urge their brothers around them, to cast it upon Christ. Cast your cares on Him who knows you and knows everything. He loves you. Do so with a prayer of faith. Ask God to take your grief and give you the great lament. Notice the text said it was a great lament. Like this, this descriptor there in verse 2, right? Devout man buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. What made it great was not their eloquence. What made it great was God in the midst of it. It was therapeutic to them because I believe, like the song says, they would say things like, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. They found it, they did it together, and they repeated it. And they preached, and they found a way to make sense of the sorrow. And God took nonsense and tears, and he turned it into a great witness. A great witness. I also think the text is saying great lament is transformative for these devout men. I think it changes them. Transformative because of the effect it has on them to grow in their desire to follow Jesus. I mean, consider they did this publicly. They did this publicly at great risk to their own lives. But they cared not. Earthly gains be forsaken. I will follow Christ. The greatest treasure heaven could give. So they preached through their sorrow. That's verse 2. Verse 3, they also preached through imprisonment. Verse 3 says, but Saul. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Contrasted with the strong protest of the pious men that are surrounding Stephen's grave is the stronger fury of the young maniac, Saul. He's violent. This soon-to-be re religious zealot for the cause of Christ shows his zeal's potential here as being fit for hell itself. The descriptors in the text give it away, don't they? Ravaging. Ravaging. The Greek word is only used here in the New Testament. It's the only place. Nowhere else. The King James says he made havoc of the church. The NET says he was trying to destroy the church. The NASB says he began ravaging the church, like our text. Ravaging. There's no simple way to explain it. I mean, the fear and the panic that he seeks to induce upon the young bride of Christ, it is a torrent, a torrent of downpouring suffering and difficulty. More details concerning his persecution actually come from his mouth. Later in the book of Acts, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem, 
I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's in 26 when he's talking to Agrippa. In 22, he said, Saul says, become Paul, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Punished. Tortured. I can't imagine. And we'll get to, we'll get to our brother Paul, right? But I, I just cannot imagine how hard it must have been for him to think of the sorrow and the imprisonment and the pain and the of breaking apart families. But these people preached in that. They, they, they think about it. If they could, if they stayed, they got arrested and thrown in. They could have left. They could have left and gone back and still been absolutely okay. We already established that, right? It could have been the better part of wisdom for them to go. Some of them pressed inward and said, "Despite the sorrow of what I've lost and despite the things I may face, I was there." Some of them. And I saw Jesus' flesh get ripped from his body. And I saw him bear the burden of my atoning, atoning for my sin. I saw him suffer. And if he can endure that for me and rise again, I will endure it so that others may know him. And they did it. And they preach. I'm sure some of them all the way, all the way to, their, to, the, to the temple where this man would torture them to, to try to get them to commit blasphemy. But they stood fast. They knew something. We know this because they wouldn't have been in prison, right? If they would have simply denied following Jesus. They're an example to us this morning, brothers and sisters. Pray to God today. Request the faith necessary to endure such sorrow and hardship. We should ask God to help us lament like they lament. And we should ask God to grant to us a faith that can persevere if such things were to happen. Right? So, though it was painful, they preached through sorrow and prison. Thirdly, though it is hard work. Uh, they preached to the streets, the commonplace and the people, the streets and the people. Look at verses 4 through 8. Let's start in 4. 4 says, Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. We really could just study this verse. We don't even have to study the rest. We get Philip and, and a helpful summary. But really, this verse, small verse, but profound implications. With such severe mistreatment upon them from Saul and those leaders under his influence... And now we know with the understanding that he will go to whatever lengths necessary to stop them. It is amazing to see the commitment to preaching Christ these New Testament believers had. They were right up with it. They were resolved not to waste their lives. They were resolved to make much of Jesus. Seeing such faith and considering ourselves what it is is essential to the reading of this account. Luke wrote verse 8-4 intentionally. He wants you to understand by observation that those that were scattered and went through this process landed where they landed and opened their mouths. They preached the gospel. That's amazing. Seeing such faith should help us consider the need these believers have. Their need is to be faithful in persecution. They need the faith not to be cowardly when the door knock comes, to wage the war that they are under in Christ's likeness. Bumping into their account this morning should challenge all of us in the room, at the least. I think it should change those who belong to Christ at the most. 
John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, um, honestly, very honestly describes the bad habits that me and you form when we spend time away from considering our lives as being used by God for the, for the advancement of the gospel, no matter the cost. So, so that's the idea, right? I mean, uh, through, though it is hard work, we preach the gospel. We preach it to the streets and the people, no matter the cost, right? And when me and you get away from that idea, Piper testifies really helpfully. He says, personally of himself, and I think you would agree, this maybe fits you. He says, I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. Before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do, not what God can do. It is a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again toward a wartime mindset. I love how that quote ends, and that's why I'm sharing it with you. What has God done this morning to me and you? Forced us to look at a warlike mindset. I get it. You and I, we have a great distance between. That's why Luke wants us to look. He wants to say, now, behold, pay attention. Look, when they got there through persecution, they preached the gospel. It's to inspire. It's not to condemn. And if you have slipped into the worldly comfort, or I have slipped into the worldly comfort of, of, of this life and not the life that is sold out for the gospel so much that every name should know him. If you've slipped into that, the invitation is not to condemn oneself. The invitation is to behold what is God, who is God, who is Jesus Christ, what has he done for me, I'm forgiven in him, and to reinvigorate an excitement. Luke closes Jerusalem to open Judea, Judea and Samaria because envisioned is the nations. This is like a transition, and the purpose is not to look in and say, woe is me. It's instead to realize there's a war. There's a war, and I've been given a duty, and I'm excited to pick it up and to go do it. I mean, Piper is the same guy who said, go, send, or disobey. I mean, there are goers, there are senders, and then there's the disobedient, and here we have this call to consider the work is hard, but the mission is clear. These people model that for us. If anyone was asking in the New Testament church, how are we supposed to grow this movement beyond Jerusalem? They would have answered in a lot of ways. They would have said, y'all remember Jesus said in Acts 1.8, we're supposed to be in, in Judea and Samaria. Hey, hey, Judea team, how's it going? Well, we're all up in the context of Judea and we're trying to figure out, you know, like what do they think? What do they say? How do they act? You know, whatever. And they're planning and they're scheming probably. I mean, they had to as they made those connections, I imagine, began to think. No one would have said, I think God's going to cause a lot of us to die I think God's going to cause half of us to be basically in prison for a long time and separated from our families. And I think another half of us are going to have to scatter with no provision in hopes that God will take care of us in Judea and Samaria. They couldn't see it. They didn't have to. What they needed to see was Jesus. Jesus was exalted at Stephen's martyrdom so that when he was exalted in Stephen's death, everyone else would be so in, in, in just brought in to the exaltation of Jesus that all the little, the little missions, hopes that they had, they would just kind of dissipate away and be ready. They'd be ready. They're warlike. They were ready. They didn't know what they were ready for, but God didn't wait to tell them. It came quickly. It came quickly through persecution. 
As I reflect on this reality so clear in Scripture here, it strikes me. It strikes me that there is so little teaching on persecution in the world of, of missions and church planning specifically. Now, I'm speaking real frank about us right here, you know, like what we're talking about, we're trying to do. And we use words like church planning, missionaries to foreign fields, like internationally, that cross lands and cultures and describe the difficulties um, in old and modern biographies and throughout the history. You know, um, I've been exposed to some of them as a pastor. Like I've read them and I've, and I've, I've sat in them and I've heard them. But I think when it comes to North America and, you know, the assumptions that we make, in other words, we do okay internationally. I think locally, to my personal knowledge and experience in this, we have so little thought about the real commitment to Jesus that results in, like, divine subtraction and God's sovereign will is to actually work through a persecution and a difficulty and a setback and a discouragement and a, and a hatred or a betrayal. <laughs> we, we instead are so attracted to attraction. That's what we think. We think we're going to reach Americans for Jesus if we just get a little bit more attractional, build a little bit better building, pro- provide a little bit cooler program. Ensure a little bit more confidence that they are okay instead of what the, seems to be prescriptive here for them. There's a lot of principle that doesn't show up in the training and in the pulpit and in the discipleship and in the mentality of American Christians. I know you see it and I see it. It's in us, right? I mean, let's not get outside the walls and point fingers. We can look in our own hearts and realize, man, who could have planned for this? How do we plan for this? The truth is you cannot plan for the circumstances of persecution outside your control. That's true. But what you can do is what the invitation for they had and what we have now is that you can do the things that will get you through it, right? We are the type of people we hope for the best. We prepare for the worst. In the American church, us, we, RBC, must do this. How, how dare we assume people need to take a year off or take time to regroup? Or take time to recoup. To put more effort and time into these things that we're doing rather than the thing, the God who loves us. Just stay in the word. Stay close to the gospel. Preach it to one another. Keep working. It better produce a love for the mission, right? We dare not do this backwards. At least that's what Acts 8 verse 4 is telling me. When they scattered, they preached. That's not hard. It's hard to do, but it ain't hard to understand. Five through eight recounts Philip's first efforts in it. We get to spend more time with Philip over the next two weeks. He was listed second after Stephen, right? You remember that? Pretty amazing. Second listed after the guy who martyred, and he's the first example we look at. What does that sound like? Stephen was modeling Jesus. He died. Philip now will model Stephen, who will model Jesus, Point is, look to Jesus, right? I mean, that's what's happening in the text. So naturally, now we need to learn about this Philip, okay? He, he, he fulfills God's words of Acts 1-8 by being the main witness that God uses in Samaria. He preaches the gospel there. God, man, Christ, will you believe? Will you believe? For the next two weeks, Luke is going to pair us with this brother to show us the acts of the Holy Spirit through him. For today, we'll simply conclude with the beauty of verse 8. Did you see it? It sneaks up on us. It sneaks up on us. In the midst of our pragmatism that I've tried to point out, 
I think we focus on five, six, and seven. We miss four and we miss eight. But because five, six, and seven are pretty awesome, right? I mean, they're the word of God. Of course they are. But I mean, what is he doing? The crowds are paying attention. They're all there. They're listening to him, right? I mean, that's awesome. How do we get them to listen to us, right? They they heard and what do they see? Signs and miracles. That's attractive, right? Like, let's give them this awesome, like, emotional feeling and these cool signs. Let's do this stuff, right? Me and you, we're attracted to that, but that, that sometimes leads us where we can't see four and eight. But I think eight is where we stay. I, I, we'll talk more about signs and wonders and what's going on in Philippi, or excuse me, in, uh, in Samaria. We're going to talk about that next week, but just for the purposes of this text and chewing it up, I, I, I want you to see four and I want you to see eight clearly in closing. Four, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Eight, so there was much joy in that city. (laughs) Joy. Man. First, let's admit a few things that makes it hard for us to see how good it is that joy is in Samaria. Uh, First, we may wrongly interpret the signs and wonders and the demon possessions that are no longer there as being the most important, important part. Me and you may be guilty at times of wrongly downplaying their importance. God did give these signs and they're necessary. We may also grossly overstate their importance. They existed in this season as mere confirmation of the preached gospel, pointing to what? Paralyzed and lame people's hearts were filled with joy. Paralyzed, actually paralyzed, people with sick hearts were, had joy in them. Second, me and you may wrongly overlook the crowds devoted to listening. Before they believed, they listened to what? To Philip's proclamation, his preaching. The gospel is preached here, and powerfully so. They listen as, as one set of ears, though there are hundreds that are present. The right listening to the gospel brings resurrection hope. It brings joy. It brings joy. That right understanding of the signs and the wonders, the clarity that they have. Now we're ready. There was much joy in that city. See, when you preach the gospel, you preach the resurrection. There was joy in Samaria in the resurrection of Christ. They had joy in the gospel that they heard. Joy, joy, joy. My kids have been singing a song lately on repeat all the time, and it was so fitting that I read this verse. They've been, they've been at it. They've been singing for us. I've got joy down in my heart, deep, deep down in my heart. Spell it, J-O-Y, down in my heart, deep, deep down in my heart. Jesus put it there, and nothing can destroy, destroy, destroy it. Now, when I sat there thinking about it, I've been, I've been annoyed by that. I think that is literally a summary of this, of this sermon. <laughs> These Christians have joy down in their heart. It's deep, deep down in their heart. God put it there, and nothing can destroy Spell it. Preach it. J-O-Y. Down in their heart. Deep, deep down in their heart. You can't get it out. Do whatever you want to it. You want to throw it in the street. You want to beat it. You want to throw it. You want to put it in the stones. You want to crucify it upside down. You want to boil it alive. You want to burn it. You want to, you want to, you want to do anything to it. You won't take this. Joy. And Samaria is getting that now. Samaria. Why? Because Philip, who showed up there, had the joy down in his heart. Now, the song we're about to sing about Christ living Because Christ lives, because of joy in God, we can hope for the hard work that preaching is. I know you and me, brothers and sisters of RBC, I know we're laboring to preach the gospel. I know because I talk to you that where you struggle to preach the gospel, you're repenting of those places and you want God to use you and give you more opportunities to preach the gospel. Let me encourage you. Jesus lives. 
Don't lose sight of that. He lives. It really is because he lives that I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. May the joy that filled the city of Samaria fill us as we pray and we sing together and then pray to God together in response. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for those of us who have joy, 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 unspeakable joy deep in our heart. You put it there. and Nothing can destroy it. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself that though it is challenging, God, that the persecutions and the calamities we face help us to see they always have a purpose. And Lord, though it is painful, we ask God that we would preach now through sorrow, Lord, to one another as we sing. But as we go out, God, when the sorrows of life overwhelm us, help us to find a way to preach in it, God. If you would call us to suffer for your name's sake, to be imprisoned or anything worse, God, we know though it would be painful, we would preach. Lord, remind us of that. And God, though it is hard work, Lord, as we reflect on your goodness and as we think on how you live, God, help us to go out from here and to be a people that preach to the streets of Nacogdoches. To our family and friends, those that we have promised to one another we would care for, God, will you help us to do that? We are wretched evangelists without you, Lord, and we need your help. And so, God, will you grant us faith in the resurrection now? In Jesus' name, amen.